So uh, my name is Justin Cabot. I'm the children's pastor here. And since I've been here, there's been a lot of really cool opportunities that I've gotten to be a part of. And one of which, which was probably one of my favorites, was I got to take, um, I was invited to go along with a group of high schoolers to Kenya. And when we went to Kenya, the guy that we met and we spent the entire week with, his name is Pastor Douglas, and he's from New Song Chapel. That's what Edgewater supports over there. And this guy, he's just killing it. So one of the big things that he's doing in an area that has an unemployment rate of, I think it was 78% when we were there, which means no one has a job. And what that really means is because there's no federal minimum wage that you could have a group of people saying, hey, we'll employ you to do this job for 20 cents an hour. And you go, well, no, I'm not going to do that. And they go, that's fine. There's a thousand other people who will. So we'll get someone else. And so you have tons of people who can't work and you have tons of people who are working themselves to the bone and not able to sustain life or pay their bills or do anything. And so that's the slums. And that's where we were at. And what Douglas was doing is he was paying men in his church a livable wage to go in the slums and install these water filtration systems. Because the number one reason why children under the age of seven over there die is because they've got no access to clean water. All their water is contaminated with bacteria. It's, it's horrific. And so he was doing this awesome thing. And in three months since he had started doing this, he had installed through his church 500 water filtration systems. And to give you kind of a reference of how good that is, the government had been doing the same program for two years, and they had installed less than 50 so Douglas is killing it. So we're over there with him, and we're, we're getting to see what he's doing. And, and everything that, that he's involved with, Jesus is just moving in. And he says, hey, I've got this guy. He's a friend of mine. And he's been doing a prison ministry. And he really wants you guys to come out and see what he's doing at the all-men's prison that we have here in Kenya. And I'm like, that seems sketch. I don't know that I really want to do that. And he goes, no, it's awesome. There will be guards with us the whole time. It, like, it's going to be good. And I go, okay, we'll go check it out. So we go. And there's honestly nothing like more dreadful than when the gate closes behind you and you're in a foreign country's all-male prison. Even though you know I'm not a prisoner, it's still like, that doesn't feel good. So we get there. We're greeted with all the guards who's there... They just have these AK-47s, and they're walking behind us, and hardly any of them speak English, and they bring us into the person who's the head, like he's in charge of the entire prison. And um, he tells us, you know, there will be no funny business. We never allow big groups like this in. It's normally just this guy, and um, you will stick with the guards. You will always be in eyesight of the guards. If you ever try to get out of eyesight of the guards, you're kicked out. And I'm like, dude, you're speaking my language. Like, that's all I, I only ever want to be around these guys. So great. You might start to gather where the story's headed. So what happens is seven guards walk out with us. And I'm like, you know, I'm digging this ratio because there's 12 of us. So I'm like, I'm digging this. So they lead us way deep into this prison and they bring us into one of these rooms. And it's kind of hard to describe their architecture, but it was a big room with windows on one side. There's a wall with an opening that led to an equally sized big room but had no windows on that side. So they bring us in there and they have 40 inmates that are standing up waiting for us to come in because what this guy's ministry is, is he does an art class. And as he does art, he teaches them about the gospel. And prior to him, uh, before he got started with doing any of his art, we got to talk with a few of the guys. 
And for you and me, this, this scenario would never happen in America, but we met a young man who was accused of committing a crime. He assured us he's innocent, but he was accused of committing a crime. He had been there for three years. They didn't have a court date set to even figure out if he was guilty. So, and that's very common. So like there's a lot of people in there and it's just one male prison too. Like there's no age range. It's just, there's young guys in there with old guys. It's just, this is where they go. There's no juvenile delinquency center like we have here. So you got this big group there. And the man that we're with has got a heart for these people. And he's, he thinks that, you know, he wants to think the best of everybody. And so we're in there and he's doing his art thing. So all the inmates make this big, almost circle. And then our high schoolers filled in the circle. So now there's this giant circle and Douglas and I are standing behind our high schoolers. And we've got the guards right here next to me. And, um, the guy who's teaching this class, he takes his shoe off because everyone's got a shoe and he does this thing where he colors the bottom of his shoe and pressed it against the paper and then he talked and he made a cross and the whole story was no matter where you've been or what you've walked through, Jesus has got plans for you. He hasn't given up on you. It was great. Like that was his whole thing. But it went for a while and I noticed as he talked, some guards got bored and they would just leave. And so now I've got three guards in here and he goes, okay, now we're all going to do this project together. So he asks a few of the guards, can you go get us paper and pens? So like one or two leave and they come back and they ask us to help pass them out. So now we're, we're passing them out. And by the time we're done passing out papers and pencils, there's only one guard left. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is fine. You know, this is going to be okay. And I don't have a paper or a pen because I'm just going to watch. I'm standing up. And the guard just says, are you good? And in the linguistic scope in my head of are you good, that the semantic range is very wide. For me, when he said, are you good, I'm thinking, oh, he's concerned that I can't do the art project. He's saying, are you good without a pen and paper or should I get you one? I'm, I, I say, oh yeah, I'm good. And he goes, and he leaves. <laughs> like he's saying, oh, you're good without me. What? And so I look at Douglas and I'm like, what was that? And so now we have all of our high schoolers who just like kindergartners in the kids wing, they're sitting there coloring their crosses, you know, doing what they're supposed to do. And I noticed the inmates are no longer interested in their piece of paper or their pens, but thankfully they're not interested in these guys, but they're too interested in the teacher. So they all get up and they gather around him. And I'm like, what is going on? And the teacher who's been leading this ministry is looking around, trying to make sure that there's no guards around. And then he pulls out of his pocket a cell phone and gives that to a group of the inmates and half of them take it and go back into the room where there's no windows. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Douglas. And then he pulls out another pocket, another cell phone. And he goes with that group of inmates into the room without any windows. And now it's just me and Douglas with these high schoolers all coloring crosses on the ground. And I'm looking at Douglas going, we're accessories to a crime. Like in America, this is, I'm pretty sure, a felony. I don't know what they call it here other than a big no-no. And the guy said we weren't supposed to leave guards, and now we brought in contraband. You know, this, the teacher's got a heart for these people. They're thinking they're innocent. You know, they need to call their families. And I'm like, not when we're here, dude. So anyway, they all come back in. The inmates get down. They color a crude cross real quick, just in time for the guards to come back. And they collect everything. And we go to leave, and as we're walking out, the guards go, do you want to see anything else? And I'm like, I just want to go home. You know, and I'm not talking about where the missionaries stay. I want to go to Oregon. I'm done. Like, that was, that was a lot for me. So this chapter of Hebrews 6, the main focus of it is really where are you going to put your trust? So people who are super well-intended, 
who even people who love the Lord, you can put all your trust in them, but they'll fail you and they'll, they'll break your heart and they'll fall short. Even your own efforts, even your own sincerity, it'll fall short. It'll fail. It won't match the expectations that you want. And so I think in Hebrews 6, what was really speaking to me as I was studying is, do I really trust in God? Do I, am I willing to put all my faith in God? Because if I start putting my faith in other people, I'm going to get let down. I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to get disappointed. I'm going to end up in a Kenyan prison for my life, right? So let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. And let's just look at the first word, which is therefore. So if you come into a movie or if you come into a room where someone's speaking and you hear the guy go, therefore, you know, I've missed like something important. Because he can't just come to his conclusion without me getting the context. So let's get some quick context. Hebrews is God's son, Jesus, is supreme. That Jesus is better than everything else. He's better than the angels. He's better than the Torah. He's better than the law. He's better than Moses, better than the promised land. And what we were looking at last week is Jesus is better than the priestly system. In verse uh, 11 of chapter 5, as he's teach them about the priestly system and how Jesus exceeds it, he says, about this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. I want to tell you more, but you guys are missing the point. Because there's a group of people in this church that they, they had heard about Jesus. They want to walk with Jesus. But they're also, they've grown up in a culture that has been centered around the temple and the festivals and the temple system. They look forward to annually getting together with their family and going through the process that they would every year. So for them, it's this huge shift of we don't do that anymore because we don't have to anymore. You don't have to go to a high priest anymore because you have a good high priest. It's like this whole worldview shift that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get them to see. And so before he can go any further, talking about the high priest, talking about um, what else Jesus is better than, he's got to stop. And he's got to explain to them real thoroughly. Jesus, who was appointed by God, understands all of your failures, all of your hurts, understands all the ways that you fail. He gets it, and he has made perfectly the atonement for all of your sin. There's nothing else that you need to be right before God. Jesus has completed it in full. And anything else that you bring doesn't help, doesn't work. And so that's really what we're jumping into in chapter 6, is we're halfway through a paragraph even. So chapter 6 says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Okay. Here's what's crazy to me. He said, hey, let's leave, a, let's leave behind us this elementary stuff. Okay, elementary. When I think elementary, I think first through fifth grade. So if you ask me, hey, Justin, what are you guys teaching in the kids' wing this week? What if I said this? What if I said, well, you know, this week we're going to cover, we're going to lay down a good foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instruction about washing and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. You'd be like, that's a pretty intense elementary course, don't you think? But for this group of believers, for them, 
That was elementary. You got to think for this group of people, for them to be considered men, by the age of 13, they have to have memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, word for word. They would know their Bible. And now he's saying, okay, before we can go any further, I wish I could go deeper with you in all of these things, but I can't because it seems like I got to lay again this foundation. And so here's just those foundations, just to briefly cover all of them. The first one is repentance from dead works. The author of Hebrews will use the same term later to talk about the things that just destroy your conscience, the things that inside just burn you, go, I can't believe I did that. But also in context of what we're looking at, it's all the things that you do that you think make you right before God. All your effort, all your sincerity, all the sacrifice, all of those things. He's saying, repent from that, which just means I turn away from that. I don't do that anymore. And instead, I have faith towards God. It's that shift of, I'm not having to earn my way to salvation because salvation has been given to me through the perfect obedience of Jesus. And all I have to do, my participation in that, is I have faith that's been completed. The next things that they cover is they talk about instruction about washings and laying on of hands. I love at Edgewater, the way that we talk about baptism is in, in Luke chapter three, you have Jesus gets baptized and immediately after that, it's like immediately, God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Satan comes after him. It's like at that moment, he gets identified for who he is, for all the physical world and all the spiritual world to see this is the son of God. And for us, when we talk about baptism, we talk about putting on the jersey that you're saying, I'm getting on the team. I'm going to get on the field. I'm going to move the ball forward. If you're a big football person, which I'm not, so I'm going to try to not mix up things. But if you see it, the football teams line it up and the pitcher says, hut, hut, hike, right? <laughs> Some of you are catching that up. I hear a lot of you aren't football people, and you're like, I don't get it. So they're lining up, and they say, hike. I've never one time seen the, one of the teams turn and just run straight through the cheerleaders and run right up into the bleachers and start beating people up. I've never seen that because they're not moving the ball forward because they're not doing anything to change things on the field. So when Jesus gets identified, when you and I put on the jersey, we're saying, I'm going to move the ball forward. I'm getting on the team. I'm going to do whatever I can to see God's kingdom move forward here today. And the laying on of hands, that's in faith saying, okay, God, this is something I can't do, but I'm going to hope that you can do something here. I don't understand the circumstances. We want you to provide in a way that only you can. And Paul will talk to Timothy about when you lay on hands someone, sometimes it's imparting gifts. Sometimes it's something that only God can do, and it's just something you do in faith. So the whole kind of movement of this chapter is, do you trust God? Do you have your faith in God? Or is it something you can do? And then the last two things is this, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Here's what I love. All through the Bible, God introduces himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob long after they've passed. And that's how Jesus talks about the father too. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He never talks about them as if they've, they've passed he talks about them as if he's living. They're living. We, have, we serve a God of the living, not the God of the dead. And that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, what it means for you and me, for every man and woman, is death is no longer something that we have to fear. Before, that was the crutch. That was, this is up to my life, and then now everything after this is, I don't know. 
Not so. When you follow God, when you follow Jesus, because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, for you and me, the attitude we should have about everything is if death is ultimately my victory, if the best thing that could ever happen to me, honestly, is if I die, because then I enter into a future kingdom where there will be no more pain, no more fear, no more hardship, no more brokenness. COVID is never there, no matter how many people gather. All of those things won't be there, right? (laughs) Amen. All of those things won't be there. If death is victory, is there really anything else in life that I can be afraid of? What, what in the world cripples me so badly and gives me such anxiety and fear if death is ultimately my victory? That's the best thing that could ever happen to me. That is honestly the perspective that Christians ought to have. If death is victory, psh, I'm not afraid of life. That's what Paul, when he gets attacked and he's going to, um, they're going, well, we'll kill you. He goes, awesome. And they go, well, we'll let you live. And he goes, great. They're like, gosh, darn it. What do we do against this guy? That's how Christians ought to be because our perspective is not on this world, but on the eternal one. And that's our last point is that we have a God who has eternal judgment where the only way, honestly, if you experience great tragedy or great injustice or something honestly terrible happens to you or your kids or your family or your home, the real only way that you can get through life without constantly seeking revenge on someone is if you know that you have a God who's just and who's going to handle it rightly. And that God is going to, the way that we look at it in Revelation, there's two groups of people. There's either the people who are covered in Jesus's blood or there's people who are covered in, in their own and there's no in between. And so you know God is very serious about justice and that God's going to handle it. And when you believe that, you go, vengeance is God. It's not mine. I don't have to worry about it right now. That can be God's thing. I can go on loving people even if they're actively against me because I know God's got it under control. It's not my deal. So that's their foundation. And that's the stuff that he wishes, you know what? I wish I could go at length with you more and build on this stuff. But apparently we got to talk about some other stuff first. And so the first thing that he's going to throw out next is a verse that you've probably heard before, taken way out of context, a verse that can seem super condemning. So let's look at that. Verses four through six. For it is impossible. Does that mean hard? Does that mean like it's kind of difficult? It means like no way. Okay, so it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to condemn. So you have this wickedly, seemingly condemning verse right there, don't you? And it's super important that you know this. Satan knows the Bible a whole lot better than you and me do. And he loves to use things out of context, out of what the author was trying to say, to really hurt people who don't know the context of those verses. You have Jesus in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. And the thing that Satan keeps trying to throw at Jesus is out of context Bible verses trying to get him to not follow God's will, but to follow Satan's will, to get Jesus to bend, to get him to fail, to get him to sin. And so I have two people in my life that are really, really important to me, and both have very similar stories. One of them 
grown up in a Christian home, loves the Lord. You could say all these things about him, that he's enlightened, he's tasted of the Holy Spirit, they've tasted of the heavenly gift, the goodness of the word of God, all that stuff. They get addicted to something. Alcohol is involved, and it destroys the family. He begins manipulating his family in order to get every last cent that he can in order to fuel his addiction. He becomes someone he really doesn't want to be. You have another friend of mine who um, got in the music world, the Christian music world. He's leading worship for people. He's actually opening for Phil Wickham for his very last tour. And the entire time he was doing it, he was high on heroin. He's got this addiction. He's got this problem. You would say, well, man, he grew up in a Christian home. So he was enlightened. He tasted of the Holy Spirit, but then he fell away. And since he fell away, Satan would say, it's impossible for you to be restored to repentance. You're kicked out. Because you failed, because you messed up, God doesn't want you anymore. That's a way that this verse can get twisted, can get mixed up by the enemy to get believers to go, just write them off. God doesn't want them anymore. Totally forgetting that in, for both of these people's stories, their life is actually like the prodigal son. That they woke up in a pig's pen one day and said, I don't want this anymore. They go back to their father only to find their father with open arms saying, my son who was dead is alive. My son who was lost is now found. Come back. And not wanting to condemn them and not wanting to say, well, now you're less than a son, but saying, we're going to kill the fatted calf and we're going to have a party because I'm, I can't be more excited that you're here. We forget about those verses when we feel like we're being condemned and we feel like we've blown it and we've messed up and how could God ever love me? Which is really what he's talking about because in a system where you're very religious, where your works equal your ability to be accepted before God, you constantly have to be aware of your motives, your sincerity, what you're doing, your, why you're doing those things. You constantly have to be checking yourself on those things of if, I, if I'm doing it right. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's not the life you live in anymore. So what is this verse really saying? This is saying that there's a group of people who are at the temple who are saying, man, it's awesome that you found Jesus, but he's not enough. You need to come back to the temple. You need to, it's awesome that you have Jesus, but you still have to circumcise your kids if you want them to be inheritors of, a, of God's promise. You still have to bring sacrifice to the temple for them for these things. You still have to participate in our feasts. You have to do all this stuff because Jesus isn't enough. That's what they're talking about. In fact, if you have little chapter headings, you'll notice above chapter six where that paragraph starts says, warning against apostasy. That's what that is. An apostate is someone who says, Jesus isn't God. Jesus isn't enough. Jesus didn't do the work entirely for you, and you still have to do something about it. What he's saying is the people that aren't going to work, the people that it's impossible to restore them to repentance, is not the person like Peter, where Peter walks with Jesus for three years, sees Jesus perform miracle after miracle, denies Jesus three times, but then desires to come back to Jesus as soon as he can. I've got to run to Jesus. Instead, it's the Judas-type person. The Judas-type person walks with Jesus for three years. It seems like he's part of the fold. He gets it. He's with them. But then, given the opportunity between $20 or Jesus, he goes, yeah, I think I'll take 20 bucks. You know, and then actively go against Christians. What you and I have to remember is that there's people 
Like verse 3, chapter 12, take care, brothers, let there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The religious people will always think, I got to do something more to add to salvation. And anything that you try to add to salvation is actually negative. It subtracts. It takes away. You don't need anything else. You don't need anything more. Jesus has done the work. You don't need to go to the temple, Jesus says. When he's in the temple, he says, yeah, you can go ahead and tear this thing down because I'll raise it up in three days. Everyone standing around goes, what are you talking about? Because it's not about the building. Jesus is saying, I'm the temple now. You're going to come straight to me. You're going to come right here. It's not going to be about coming to a place and offering sacrifices. I'll offer the sacrifice. You can come straight to me. Jesus did all the work. The author is saying, he's not being like, hey, the oven's hot. Don't touch it. He's saying the whole kitchen is lava. Okay, don't go in there. You want to stay away from that as much as possible. That's why it's such a harsh and critical thing that he's saying is don't go there. And it opens up a really interesting question. The question is, can a Christian lose their salvation? Can someone who knows Jesus is God, someone who walks with the Lord, someone who's accepted Jesus and not their own works, can that person lose their salvation? And that should be a resounding no. No way. If you want, you can read Romans 5 through 8. If you want, you could read John chapter 10, which is Jesus saying, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Or you can look at a pickle because a cucumber, once you've pickled it, it will never be a cucumber again. Does not matter what you do to that cucumber. It doesn't matter if there's death involved, if there's life involved, if there's angels involved or rulers or things present, or things to come, or powers, or height, or depth, or anything in all of creation, you will never turn a pickle back into a cucumber. In that same way, there's nothing that could ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You could also look, Matt gave me this illustration, and I have to explain it because it's, it's such a great illustration, but Matt said it's kind of like a pig. When a pig becomes bacon for your meal, he's all in. There's no going back. But a chicken can give you an egg for your meal, but the chicken's still outside doing his thing. It's that same way. You're all in. But then you, you might say, well, that kind of scares me still. So how do I know? How do I know that I'm one of Jesus' sheep? How do I know that I'm one of his people? How do I know that I'm, I'm excluded from this group? And it gives us a few categories. It gives us a picture in verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for, those whose, useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So Jesus is saying, are you an orchard or are you an acre full of blackberries? And not even like the good blackberry bushes, but the kinds that don't get enough water and they just have those like really thick ones that aren't even sweet, like that kind. He's saying, what kind of fruit do you have? Jesus will talk about this in Matthew chapter 7, where he'll say, my people produce fruit. You'll never see a group of thistles producing oranges. When I was growing up in San Diego, I remember there was one house that it was on top of this mountain. It was so cool. And the entire side of it was full of these incredibly sharp bushes. Like they came out to a needle point and they would just stab you. And I remember always having scratches on my legs running through them. And never one time did I ever go through those and go, mom, look, that one's growing peaches. Like no way. 
Jesus is saying good fruit comes from good trees. Bad fruit comes from bad trees. Jesus says, you'll know my people by their works. And it go like four pages in your Bible to the right, and you'll end up at James. If you look at James chapter 2, verse 14, here's what it says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now hold on. Because we were just talking about that I don't need faith anymore, or I don't need works anymore. It's all about faith, right? Anything that I add just subtracts. Your justification, what justifies you before God, I heard John Corson say it, and it's so brilliant. It's just as if I live the life, the life Jesus did. That's how you look at justification. You can come before God just as if you lived the life that was perfect like Jesus did. But now you and I, we go through the rest of our lives trying to be sanctified, made holy, changing ourselves to be more in line with what God wants for us. We allow God to be the potter and us to be the clay. And we do that actively by being participants with God. And part of that is works, but not works so that God will love you. Work so that you can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's the picture of my daughter when she draws me something. She's not doing it hoping that I'll say, here, dad, love me now. She does it just so I can go, dang, babe, that's great. I love that. That's why we do works. And we do works to produce fruit in our lives. And you know what kind of fruit is, becomes evident in our lives? It's all stuff you want. It's the book of Galatians. It's love. It's joy. Man, don't you wish you had more joy in your life? You'll never have too much. It's peace that passes understanding. When the whole world is falling apart, you can go, yeah, but my God's on the throne, so it's okay. It's patience. It's long-suffering. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. It's self-control. It's all the stuff that you and I, in our lowest points, wish that we had more of, because if we had more of that, we probably wouldn't be in the spots that we get ourselves into. That's what Jesus wants to see producing out of us, evident out of us. Not so that we can be justified, but so that we can become more and more like him each and every day. We gotta be people who are producing fruit. But maybe you say, well, the things that I do, I don't know if God sees them because they seem so tiny. They're not a big deal. Well, look at verse nine. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work for the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. You guys, Jesus says, even if you give a glass of water to kids, that he'll bless you for that. I don't understand why more of you aren't in the kids wing. I mean, this is just free blessing right here. Like every week, you just go, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. You just hand them out, man, 30 at a time. God won't overlook your works that you do for the love of his name. I'm just saying, you want some freebies? I'll give you freebies every week. <laughs> Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. Earnestness just means conviction. I gotta do this. To have full assurance, confidence of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who faith and patience inherit the progress, the promises. Man, I can't speak tonight. We need to be people who go, okay, 
I want to do this. I'm not going to be sluggish, but I'm going to be imitators. Imitators of who? Well, here's a good example. Abraham. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the example that we're given is Abraham. So Abraham, at 75 years of age, God comes to and says, okay, I want you to wander out in this place. You're going to wander in this land that isn't yours, and one day I'm going to give it to you, and you're going to have a kid through your wife, Sarah, and that kid will be raised into a mighty nation, and this will be his land. So at 75 years, he starts wandering with his group, with his wife, waiting for a kid, waiting for God's promise to come true. At 100 years old, it hasn't happened yet. His wife is 90. His wife could have been saying, you laugh. (laughs) You're thinking of some of the things Sarah might be saying. But yeah, his wife could be saying, you've wasted your entire life trusting God, waiting on his promise. What are we doing? Our lives haven't even started yet. I want my forever home. And we don't have that. We're wanderers. We don't have kids yet. What are we doing? And so God comes again to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And what Abraham says, because God says, hey, I'm still going to give you that kid. And I'm still keeping my promise with you. And this is what Abraham says. He goes, yeah, but how do I know? Because at this point, I kind of want a token. I want something that I could just go, okay, yes, this is going to happen. And God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Back in these ancient days, you couldn't just go get a judicial person. You couldn't go get a lawyer, and you're going to write out a contract. And what they do is they weigh your assets, and they say, okay, if he doesn't come through on his promise, you know, you get this much money over this period of time. No, what it was is they would go get animals. They would cut them in half, and you would meet between the two of them. And you would say, if I don't make good on my end of the bargain, may I be cut in half like one of these animals? If you've ever waited for the cable guy to show up to your house, you wish we were back in these days, right? You said you'd be here an hour ago, right? But what he's saying is, if I don't make good on my end of the deal, I'm dead. If you don't make good on your end of the deal, you're dead. And so when God tells Abraham, go get two animals, cut them in, go get all these animals, cut them in half, he, he goes, okay, we're going to make a deal. We're going to make a contract. He's probably worried, thinking, I, I hope I make good on my end. You know, I, I hope I don't mess up. I hope I don't, don't do all this stuff. Well, he does it. God puts him to sleep. What we're told is God walks all the way through the two animals. And here's what God's saying. You're going to mess up. I know you're going to do that weird stuff where you pretend that your wife is your sister. Don't know why. Because I told you you're going to be an inheritor of a land 
with a son that's your own, but okay. I know all that's gonna happen. I know you're gonna fail. I know you're gonna make mistakes, but God's character, and I, this is why I highlighted it, it's so good, the unchangeable character of his purpose. God's character never changed. His purpose never changed. His promise to never change. And what he's saying to Abraham right here is, you're gonna fail. You're gonna blow it. You're gonna mess up. And when you do, you're not gonna be torn in half. You're not gonna be cut in half, but I'll be ripped apart. I'll be torn apart. I'll let all the punishment fall on myself. And so there's three things. If we could look at three things, then then we'll go. You gotta go get your kids. I'm starting to hear them. The first thing is this. You need to trust God. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Anything else in life will fail you. Anything else that you put your trust in, your hope in, whether it be your spouse or your job or your kids or even yourself, everything else is going to fail you. There's a philosopher that said, you never step into the same river twice because everything changes. That same philosopher later said, you never step onto the same road twice because things change there too, just slowly. And in that same way, you never come home to the same family twice because people, they grow up and they change and they have new experiences and their perspective changes. And even though you believe something to be true about someone one day, it might not be true the next day. People will always fail. People will always fall short. But Jesus never does. He's an anchor for your soul. He's someone that you could put all your faith, all your trust in and go, okay, at least I got this. I'm grounded now. I know where I'm going to be. I can't drift too far He's the anchor for my soul. So one, he's someone you need to trust in. The second thing is you can trust him. Jesus is so serious that he'll cover both sides even when you fail. There's this Psalm, it's Psalm chapter 11. And I was just thinking about the times that we live in, right? And so David is having the worst time in his life. His son is actively coming after him, trying to kill him. And his friends say this to him, Psalm chapter 11. Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in the heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And his response is, Yahweh is in his temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. So even if the whole world, the foundations are destroyed, what in the heck are the righteous supposed to do? And that's David's response. Yahweh's in his temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. So the first thing that we have to remember that we can trust in God, his throne's in heaven, that God's still in control. Even when we don't understand it, even when we don't know why what's going on is going on, God's got a good plan, even if it doesn't seem that way to me. My nephew Ezekiel just moved down from Portland and he doesn't know why and he doesn't get it. And he doesn't think it's the best move. And his parents are like, no, we're moving down to Grants Pass because that's just what, that's what our family's doing. It's better for us. And he doesn't get it because he's two, or I think he's three, but he's really young. But the distance between a three-year-old's understanding all the way up to a 37-year-old's understanding is superiorly smaller than our understanding compared to God's understanding. And there's going to be stuff that happens in our life where we go, God, I don't get this. I don't understand why this is happening. This doesn't seem like the best move for me. We can trust God's thrones in heaven, that he's got it under control. Even if I don't understand it, your ways are higher than my ways, God. You've got a plan. The second thing is God's in his holy temple. Now, David's saying God's with me. God is in control, but he's also with me. But David's understanding of that is so much lesser than yours and mine because Israel could get close to the temple. 
And the high priest once a year could go into the holy of holy places. But because of Jesus, verse 19, that anchor of our soul is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. However God was with David, it's not nearly to the degree that God is with you and me. You can trust God because not only is he in control, but he's present with you today. He's an ever-present help. When you're in trouble, when life seems like it's falling apart, you can go straight to God right now. But then practically, how? How do I trust in God today? I think it's you volunteering the kids' wing. Sorry, I have to. It's part of my job. I have like a, I have to, a certain amount of times. <laughs> I think you earnestly and with full assurance of the hope. And what that means is you have full assurance of the hope of this doesn't make me any more righteous, but you earnestly do the work. You earnestly partner with God and say, okay, God, whatever you have for me today, in my workplace, in my families, with my friends, I'm going to get in the game. I'm going to lay on hands. I'm going to, in faith, trust that you're doing something greater than me and that because you love me, because you've accepted me, you want to partner with even broken, even messed up, even wrong-intentioned me to see your kingdom move forward. Man, we get to be a part of the team. Let's do that today. So Jesus, I pray we'd be people who would earnestly do the work that when we see all that you've laid out for us, all that you've entrusted to us, our kids, our spouse, the place where we live, the place where we work, I pray that we'd be faithful in those areas, that we'd be seeking to glorify you, that we would be daily putting aside ourselves, putting aside all of our wants and our desires, and we'd be seeking the best for other people and be seeking to make Jesus the name above all other names that we make you known in this community, Lord. So thank you for choosing us. May we be people who trust in you today. Amen. Thanks for coming here tonight. Go get your kids.